0: During the summer months, we have been working our way through the psalms. These are the songs of Jesus. These, these are the songs that he would have sung in worship growing up as a boy in the synagogue. These are the psalms that accompanied him through ministry. These are the psalms that he taught and sung. And we have record of him even in his dying moments on the cross, singing out the psalms. This is a part of scripture that... Uh, It is unlike most others. There are parts of Scripture, the great teachings, the the robust doctrines that lay out the principles of our faith, and they, they stretch our minds, and they challenge our actions. But when you get to the Psalms, you're working in the realm of emotions. You're going deep into the motives of the heart. And as a way of just offering an introduction, and I'll probably say this every week, the Psalms give us a great way of dealing with our feelings. It's kind of like a third way. It's a way that stretches itself out in between what historically religion has tried to do with feelings and what in the contemporary world secularity, secularism is challenging us to do with our feelings. Religiosity through most of history has been uncomfortable with human emotion religious people by and large want to deny the power and the depth and and sometimes the darkness of what's going on in the heart. But on the other hand, we have, I think, within this generation, within a secular worldview, a tendency to see the discovery and the expression of our feeling almost as a good end to itself. Our goal is to Discover feelings and and cultivate them and express them. In a sense, bow to them. Those are my feelings, we say. I guess I've got to go with them. To bow to your feelings or to suppress them, to to be overawed by your feelings or to be unaware of them. Both are kind of extreme and, and both are fraught with peril. And the Psalms ask us to do neither. The Psalms don't say deny them and the Psalms don't say just vent them. What the Psalms really encourage us to do is pray our way through them. Pray your way through the deepest feelings. Bring them before God and process them there. At the beginning of the series, we we looked at doubt. Praying our way through those seasons of doubt. And this week, we're looking at pain and sorrow and tears. And if you wonder why the mood of the service has been a little bit more subdued, that's because it's in keeping with the theme of the Psalms. What do you do with your tears? By the way, if you were to take the psalms, all 150 of them, you could break them out into categories. And, and, and lots of scholars, interpreters have done this. And there are a variety of categories. But, but we know that by far, the largest category of psalms are, are, are what are called laments. These are psalms of weeping and crying and, and grieving. It's the largest cluster or group of the Psalms. What do we do with our tears? Well we're told three things in the Psalms and in the Psalms particularly that Elizabeth read for us this morning. First we should expect them. And I know that's a hard word, but we should expect tears. Secondly, we need to learn what it looks like to invest them, or to use the language of Psalm one hundred twenty six. What does it look like to sow your tears? And then finally, to pray our way through them. And that's sort of the trajectory for our message this morning. If you want to open up your order of service to the back page, you'll see an outline with some scripture references that that you can follow along with. But what does it mean to say that we expect our tears? Have a look again at Psalm 126. Flip open your Bibles or turn on your device. Psalm 126, beginning in verse 1, says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed, and our mouths were filled with laughter. What's this about? Well, to be honest, we're not really sure. Uh, some people suggest this might be the return of the people of Israel who've been living in bondage and captivity and exile for 70 years. But, but honestly, we're not sure. And, it, and actually, it doesn't really matter for our purposes. The point is, God did something in the life of his people that was so big that all the other nations saw it. And it was beyond anything they could have imagined. It says, we were like men who dreamed. This is the stuff of dreams. They they felt like the dreams that they had had been fulfilled and more, more than they dared ask or imagine had been given to them. God had done something terrific for them. We don't know what it was, again, but but we know it was great. But then have a look ahead. Look at verse 4. And do you feel the turn? Things pivot dramatically. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. By the way, if you're reading through those verses, you'll notice that the first three verses are all in the present tense? But then are the second three verses also in the present tense? And you say, wait a minute, how could this be? How could it be that all the great stuff that God was doing and then all the tearful stuff that's going on are both happening in the present? The answer is, I think, that they are remembering the blessing of God so vividly, so powerfully, that they're describing it as if it was going on right now. But but the truth is, here's where they are in the moment. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. What's the Negev? Desert, right? Barren, lifeless. Again, we don't know what was wrong in their life. It could be they're going through a season of famine, a literal desert experience. It could be a plague or some crushing military defeat. We don't know. But the point is their life had become barren like a desert. What's the point? What do we learn? The first thing we learn is that even in your life, even when you're walking with God, even when good things have just happened, you can still expect tears. In fact, you should expect tears. And maybe you should expect a lot of them. That's a hard word, isn't it? By the way, I don't don't know about you, but when somebody says, I've got bad news, I've got good news, what do you want to hear first? I always want to hear the bad news first. Because I want to end with the good news. So I hope you don't mind. We're starting with the bad news. And and this is the bad news. We should expect tears. And making the bad news worse is that that many Christ followers live with this little myth that says, if I lead a good life, if I'm a good little boy, a good little girl, a good Christian, God is not going to let anything really bad happen to me. Look carefully again at this psalm. Again, we don't know what happened in the desert, but it's terrible. Their lives are like a desert. But there's no sign of any, of any repentance here. Nowhere do you hear them saying, Oh, Lord, return. We know we've sinned. We know we've strayed from our ways. We, we know we turned to the right or to the left. And, and we want to commit ourselves back to you again. Why is that not present? Because they don't think it's because of something they've done wrong that their lives are like a desert. You know that's true, right? Not every bad thing that happens can be laid at the feet of some choice that you made or some behavior that you feel guilty about. Christians are supposed to expect tears. And we expect them not just because we live in the world where everyone has tears, where where things go wrong, sometimes awfully wrong. Most Christians tend to think if something's going wrong in my life, I must have been doing something wrong and God is punishing me. I'm not praying like I should. I'm not attending church as frequently as I ought to. If anything, you might want to realize that the Bible indicates that when you become a follower of Christ, a person of faith, you're probably going to weep more. Now, how can that be? I'll give you two reasons why, just quickly. First, there's a great little metaphor that the Bible uses to describe conversion. You find it in Ezekiel in chapter 11 and 36. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. What does that mean? mean, It probably means lots of things, right? But at the very least, it means that when God comes into your life, your heart gets a little softer, a little more vulnerable. You begin to feel the weight of evil and pain around you. You feel the pain of people who are victims of evil. You feel grief because of the presence of evil. You used to have all these self-defense mechanisms that protected you. When you saw people around you and they were screwing up their lives, you said, well, that's their problem. They deserve it. It's up to them to fix it. But now you know because you know what you have and you know what they could be. And you grieve and you weep for them. There's all kinds of reasons why, if anything, as Christ's followers grow in grace, they should expect to cry more. Here's the other reason, though. There was once, according to the Bible, a perfect human heart that came into the world, and and he lived here for a number of years. And one of the things we know about that perfect human heart is that Jesus was always weeping. A man of sorrows, the Bible describes him, acquainted with grief. And I would say, and you would probably agree, that that Jesus was walking pretty well with God, wasn't he? And yet, it would be hard to say that nothing bad ever happened to him. And maybe it seems too obvious, but if you don't expect tears, you'll always be crying about two things instead of just one. You'll be crying about the thing that grieves you, and then you'll be crying about the fact that you're crying. What do I mean? You'll be crying about the thing that's made you unhappy, the, the disappointment, the challenge, the trouble. But then you're also thinking unconsciously. You'll be thinking, why is this happening? I've been trying to live a good life. Why is God letting this thing happen to me? I shouldn't be going through all of this. And you're going to sink under the weight of all of that. Adjust your expectations. I mean, that's, that's the first lesson from the Psalms. Expect Tears. But then, what does it look like to, to invest your tears? That second thing. I'm using that word here deliberately because I realize in the GTA we have far more people that are familiar with the language of investment than with the language of agriculture. Right? Most of us are not farmers. But here's the metaphor that, that's in Psalm 126. You find it in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Now, at first, that doesn't look all that unusual, right? First of all, all farmers go out, they sow seed, nothing happens, at least not right away. But eventually they come back at the end of the season, they're filled with joy, a crop is growing, it's harvest time, and they come back. No big deal, right? We we understand that pattern. And we can imagine that at harvest time, there's songs of joy thanksgiving right but it's saying something else here and here's why it's true that when farmers go out and they come back with songs of joy it's because of the harvest but when they go out do they go out weeping as they sow they sow in tears what's going on here it's a poetic image right it's a poetic image a farmer going out sowing tears Or maybe watering the seed with their tears—a poetic image. It's it's a little bit ambiguous, or, or it can be stretched and pulled, and and that's the job of poetry. The job of poetry is to evoke something, and this is what it's telling us: you don't avoid your tears, but on the other hand, you don't just express your tears. You have to plant them. You have to sow your tears. Think about it for a second. There's two ways. You remember we said that for much of history, religious people have tried to stuff their feelings down and, and and secular people want to just give them free reign in their life. Neither of those things are in view here because if you just take your seed and you just sit on it, what will you have at harvest? You'll have nothing. Right? On the other hand, if you just take a big bag of seed and you walk six feet out into a pile of dirt and just dump it, And then come back home. You're not going to get much of a harvest either. You can't stuff your seed away, and you can't just dump it. You have to plant it. In other words, we're being told to sow our tears, to see tears as an opportunity for fruitfulness and growth. Don't waste your sorrow. Don't waste your sorrow. God, never waste the experiences of your life, the good ones and the awful ones. That's not a masochistic idea. It's not embrace your sorrows and pretend they're a good thing. It's not saying that at all. On the other hand, it's also not just a kind of hedonistic spirit that says life is all joy all the time. So we should avoid tears at every cost. You don't just dump it and you don't just hide it. This is where the language of investment maybe helps us, because again, we're not farmers, but, but think about investing. You don't just dump your money, you invest it. You find a place, you send it out, and if you've done well, it brings back a return. What's the reward here? What's what's the result? It's joy. It's mind-boggling when you think about it. It's going beyond most of us, what most of us think and expect when we read the Bible. We read the Bible and we think it teaches that our tears give way to joy. We have a season of sadness and then we have a season of goodness and joy. And the Bible says that too. Psalm 30, verse 5. Sorrow may last through the night, you know this, but joy comes in the morning. There's a time for tears, there's a time for gladness. And of course, the Bible teaches that tears give way to joy. But this is something deeper. This is even more profound. This is saying that in the gospel, if you plant your tears, the tears actually produce joy. They don't just give way to joy. They don't just wait. You don't just wait for the tears to go away and then joy comes. If you plant them, they produce joy. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul can say to Corinthians 4, for this slight momentary affliction, all these troubles, all these tears, this slight momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. That word achieving actually is the word producing. This slight momentary affliction, these tears are producing a weight of glory. It's glorifying us. It's, it's changing us. It's bringing a harvest of joy into our hearts. Now, I know there's a kind of joy that comes just in avoiding tears. There are times in your life when everything is great. It's on track. It's beautiful. But that doesn't really change you. The kind of joy that comes through tears, that changes you forever. Here's my question. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to sow your tears? How to plant them? Not just dump them and not just stuff them. Do you know how to sow them? Well, you say, how, how do we do that? Let me just run you three, through three, three suggestions, three quick ideas. One of the things that's intriguing about Psalm 126, about all the psalms, all these laments, is that they're prayers they're white hot. They come before God honestly with feelings. They come with tears. That's what transforms both the tears and the ones who shed them. So let me give you these three things that you might might want to keep in mind as you pray through your tears. First is a realization of God's grace. Second is a vision of the cross. And the third is is an assurance of glory. You you, you try and keep those three things in mind as you weep and as you pray. And here's what they mean. You plant your tears, and as you plant them, you claim, you realize, you remember the grace of God. One of the things that you always want to remember about God is that that He understands tears. It means it's safe to take them to Him. I, I want to read for you again. Those last two verses of Psalm 39 that Elizabeth read. Later you should read the rest of the psalm. You'll realize just how amazing these words are. But here's the last two verses. Psalm 39. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, Lord, so that I can rejoice again before I depart. And I am no more. All the Psalms, especially the Psalms of David, are filled with this wrestling, with with weeping, with, with shaking your fist at the heavens, with asking how long. But they always end on this note of triumph. Psalm 16, filled with fears and with tears. But the last verse of Psalm 16, David says, You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The end of Psalm 17, again, a psalm filled with weeping and tears and unhappiness. But here's the last verse. And I, I in righteousness, I will see your face when I awake. And I will be satisfied in seeing your likeness. But let's come back again to this this Psalm 39. David's wrestling, he's weeping. And look how it ends. It ends in an absolute theological mess. Look at it, and I'll paraphrase it for you. Look away from me, Lord. Look away from me. Turn your face away from me. Leave me alone so that I can have a little bit of peace before I die. And that's how he ends his prayer. This is a prayer of David. And it ends with such overwhelming emotion that he actually tells God to do the very opposite of what God should do and what God will do. We're not supposed to pray like this. It's not supposed to feel like this. We're not supposed to talk like this. But he does. And the very presence of that kind of prayer in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak and how we feel when we're desperate. We're right at the bottom. He understands what it's like when our feelings so overwhelm us that we say desperate things, incorrect things, he understands it so much that he puts an example right there in Scripture as if to say, it's safe to pray to me. Pray all of your feelings. It's safe to pour out those deepest cries of your heart to me. And don't worry about what it sounds like. Psalm 39 shows us that your deepest feeling, your anger, your tears, your frustration, all belong to him. And when the first thing that happens when you have a realization of that kind of grace is that you'll take those things to God instead of hiding them from him. I shouldn't be feeling like this, Lord. I don't want to feel like this. In Psalm 39, he says, it's safe to come to God with all of it. God understands. Here's the second thing. You plant your tears in a vision of the cross. In some ways, this is the most important. Why is it that God so understands this? Why do we have a God who understands these cries of dereliction and abandonment and sadness? Because we have a faith that dares to claim that God himself came into this world, became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You pictured Jesus at prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. God knows what it's like to cry out in dereliction and desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see him on the cross. And we put our tears in the vision of the cross. And this is what I mean. On the cross, we get to see... C.S. Lewis called it the deeper magic of the faith. And here's what he was getting at. You know, medieval alchemists, they were always looking for a magical way to turn lead into gold, right? This is the magic that will turn your tears into gold. When I see Jesus on the cross, I see see tears producing joy. Jesus didn't just save us by getting through the tears. The tears produced joy. His tears produced a joy that, that comes when our welcome into the bosom of God is made possible. You look at the cross and you say, wait a minute. Even though I feel like I'm being abandoned by God, I'm not. Even though I feel like God is punishing me for my sins, he's not. That's what the cross was about. And here's something else that will happen. You'll get rid of self-pity. That'll kill you. Weeping is fine. Weeping in grief is fine. Weeping in disappointment is fine. Jesus was always weeping. But weeping in self-pity will make you small, a shriveled person someone who can't forgive, someone who always feels they're being mistreated, someone who's touchy and oversensitive and dried up inside. But when you focus on the cross, the impatience, the self-pity, all the unnecessary guilt, all those things get combed out of you. And you start to become more like Jesus. You start to be humbled by your tears. You become more sensitive to people instead of being more self-absorbed. Here's the last suggestion as you pray through tears. You plant your tears in an assurance of glory. Have a look one last time at Psalm 126. Look at the last verse. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, might return with songs of joy. Look again. He who goes out weeping carrying seeds to sow, possibly will return with songs of joy. It's not what it says at all, right? Will return, a certainty. This is bedrock, this is foundational. I I was reading a, a great book on the Psalms, written years ago by Eugene Peterson, it's called Answering God. And when he got to the last five Psalms, you know, Psalms 146 to 150, He points out there is nothing there but praise. There's no lament. There's no confession. There's no meditation. It's just praise, 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 praise. And this is what Peterson says. What the Psalms are teaching us is that all true prayer pursued far enough will become praise. Listen to what he writes. This is beautiful. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin No matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, any prayer ends up in praise. It doesn't always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. And this is not to say that other prayers are inferior to praise, only that prayer pursued far enough always becomes praise. So don't rush it. It might take years, Peterson says, decades even, before your prayers arrive at hallelujahs. And not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter, that's not a truck that goes out in the wintertime, thats language for the collection of Psalms. If the Psalter is the true guide, prayer is always reaching towards praise and will finally arrive there. And so our lives are filled out in goodness Earth and heaven meet in an extraordinary conjunction. Clashing symbols announce their glory. Blessing. Hallelujah. Amen. Do you know the joy that's inevitably coming? Maybe you're afraid to weep. Maybe you feel like if you start, you'll never stop. But if you know that all prayer will end in praise, that eventually will be with Him forever, it frees you. It frees you not only to allow your own tears to be planted, but to get involved in people's lives when it's tough, when it will make you weep for them. Are you, are you settled enough in your confidence about the glory of God that you can be a weeper? Are you assured enough of that glory that you're not afraid to weep because you know that tears invested produce a harvest of joy? And are you happy enough to get involved in the lives and the hurts of other people in this city, to get involved in the needs of the city, it will make you weep. But if you are, the tears that you experience in ministry, the tears you experience in repentance, the tears you experience in relationship will produce a harvest of joy for the people around you and in your own heart. Let's pray. Father, make us happy enough, content enough, and assured enough to weep. Help us learn what it means to sow our own tears. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.